podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that nearly every issue that shows up in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in fiction, poetry, or nonfiction. On each episode of the FNF podcast, we'll bring you not only the news, but literature chosen to shed some light on the subject at hand. I'm Whitney Terrell. And I'm Wit's co-host, Sugi Ganeshanathan. Today, we'll be discussing social media, democracy, and writers on social media with two special guests. Our first guest, Alexis Madrigal of The Atlantic, is one of journalism's best voices on technology and business and the author of a recent article about Facebook's effect on American democracy. And our second guest will be writer Alexander Chi, who, in addition to being a widely acclaimed novelist and essayist, has been described in the press as possessing that ineffable thing, social media prowess. Yes, yes. It is definitely ineffable to me, but uh, we'll find out what Alex thinks it really means. For readings today, we'll be talking about Alexis's piece, some earlier journalism about social media, and a favorite Borges story, The Library of Babel. First up, we have Alexis with us. Alexis, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, Look, we're glad to have you on to to sort of dissect this issue. Um, Social media was already on our minds. A lot of our writer friends have been re-examining their relationships to social media in the wake of last fall's presidential election and the evidence that Russia influenced it, you know, through social media and strategically boosted fake news. Or claims by the Trump campaign's digital director, Brad Parscale, that Facebook employees were embedded in the Trump campaign and that Facebook was crucial to the campaign's success. And we were really interested to read your piece, What Facebook Did to American Democracy. Um, I think I actually I spotted it in Jim Fallow's Twitter feed. Can you tell us a little bit about how you realized you needed to write it and some of the follow-ups that you've written and how you reported on and thought through this issue, and especially journalists' failure to tie all the threads together before the election? Sure. Um, yeah, I've been thinking about Facebook for a long time. I mean, when I went out on paternity leave in late 2013, uh, I was gone for this period of time in which Facebook started to send a lot more traffic to the Atlantic. And so it was like I went out on paternity leave and I came back two months later and like the whole Internet was different. Um, And I feel lucky that that happened because uh, I think it really made clear that in the span of uh, uh, just a couple months, um, Facebook's entrance uh, into the media distribution market had thrown everything into disarray. Uh, and it wasn't necessarily bad, you know, at that, in, in the early days, it was just like traffic was raining down on us. But then, you know, as time went on, I used to talk about, uh, with my friends, you know, I used to talk about how Facebook world was just very different. Uh, the stories that were succeeding were different. The old ways that people ran into stories, uh, you know, old websites, blogs linking to each other, smaller social networks, more niche things were all sort of being swallowed up by this voracious uh, social media beast, which was Facebook. So because of that personal experience with just sort of the change in the ecosystem, I've watched it really closely. It's also been my job to watch it. And um, this story actually ended up writing incredibly fast. Like I'd been thinking about it for weeks and weeks, but it was really just like uh, literally a couple of days Um, because as a friend of mine put it, well, you've been writing this story for years, just like drunker and at bars with friends. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And and I think that, that, yeah, I was just wondering, I kept thinking like, when you say like, we saw this traffic raining down or I went in in the offices and, and, you know, like we could see the, the change in traffic. How? Like what? I I literally want to know, like, what does it look? Is it on a screen? Do you have a tracker? How does that, what does that actually look like? Yeah, well, you know, at the time, uh, um, you know, I had built kind of like my own dashboard trying to like understand the Internet. You know, I think at the time it would be like, you know, um, Chartbeat has a little needle. Um, so imagine it's like, you know, like a like a, a regular dial. Um, and for a time there, it was just like always redlining. <laughs> <You know? laughs> always far to the right. You know, that's that's pretty much what was going on. Wow. And um uh, you know, the top story back then used to take up more space on the screen oh. and it would take up space. Um, so, you know, th- that was kind of how we were perceiving this change. But there were also more subtle things. You know, I, I felt like um, stories that were essentially like more subtle or where the takeaway uh, was muddled in the sense of like the world is messy and there's not always like a single bad actor or a single good actor. There's not necessarily something to be outraged about or happy about. Those stories were struggling. Death to nuance. 
Yeah. Like it was just, it was tough. The way I used to describe it was, you know, you'd kind of put this story into, uh, you know, the, the great vast works that you could see and it needed to be like sanded down completely. It was like needed to look like a torpedo, you know, to sort of make it through the pipes with the least friction. That's so interesting. Can you, I don't suppose you could, can you, can you tell me an, an example of a story that you really thought just a story where you thought before it would have gotten through and people would have loved it and you loved it maybe. And then after in the advent of Facebook world, it didn't make it through the pipes. And so uh, like a, a good example from this recent stint that I can think of, and it, the story did okay, but not on Facebook. Uh, it, did, it did like well everywhere, but Facebook basically was a story I wrote about um, how checkers was solved, which seems really dumb. Um, but it turns out to be this incredible story about the world's greatest ever checkers player, who's probably the greatest at any game ever. He was essentially dominant for 40 years uh, yeah. and over like, you know, thousands of games, he made like seven recorded ris- mistakes or something like that. It's insane. And the guy was playing uh, this computer system that was built in Canada when he was diagnosed with cancer. So he pulls out. Uh, dies a couple months later and the computer guys never get to beat him. And that makes them embark on this quest to prove that they could have beaten him, which required solving the game. So they spend a decade doing it off and on and finally (laughs) announce this thing and it becomes uh, this whole thing. It's, uh, It's an insane story. It's such a good story. It's so like cinematic and fun. And like, I don't know, like what Facebook page would that do well on? I don't know, the World Checkers Association. <laughs> like, I have no idea. Because it doesn't seem like something people would care about. And I think that's one of the hard things is that um, if you don't get initial heat on a story, you don't get people uh, clicking it and um, liking it, although that hardly matters anymore, and sharing it, uh, then it's really hard for something to take off. That's fascinating. I think, um, and my question was about the dark ads. There's this one part of the article where you wrote the Trump campaign was working to suppress idealistic white liberals, young women, and African Americans, and they'd be doing it with targeted dark Facebook ads. These ads are only visible to the buyer, the ad recipients, and Facebook. And I just was thinking, I had spent a lot of time wondering, you know, what was it that people who were at a different part of the political spectrum than me, you know, they were maybe seeing things, some things maybe produced by Russian bots or Breitbart or other folks. And, and then I had also been targeted, perhaps um, fitting arguably into at least one of those demographics. And I have no idea what a dark Facebook ad looks like. And I was wondering, do you do we know? Um, you know, the uh, this week, actually, uh, executives from Facebook, Twitter and Google are testifying on the Hill and they the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee, where the ranking Democrat is Mark Warner, um, he has those ads. Uh, we know uh, a couple examples of pages because they just kind of leaked in various ways. So there was a page called Blacktivists, which was uh, right. a small, okay. uh, controlled page. Um, Wait a minute. We, are you kidding me? Because I've got posts from them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I mean, the, I the remember fun- reading about this. I remember reading about this was that this was um, a Russian driven site, but I didn't realize that so this is an example. That's an example of a dark ad. Well, they could have purchased ads. So here's here's the way to think about what ads do. Um, do you remember that where I was saying, like, you need to get enough people to like and click and share something in order to sort of drive this sort of cycle uh, of, of popularity. So what you try and do when you're buying an ad, you try and target it to people you know are going are gonna to click and like and share that thing. Those clicks and likes and shares count towards the total. Um, and so you can build heat with it. And so what that allows you to do, if you have a very hot uh, piece of content for a particular group, you can use them as essentially the, the to light the fuse. One can imagine they did a couple different things with the ads. They could have just served them like, you know, like a normal ad to try and just get in front of your eyeballs. But they were probably trying to get shares out of it. And so if you saw an ad from Blacktivist, it's as likely as not that someone saw an ad and then shared it, quote unquote, organically. Right. Right. And that's why it's really hard to know how far the ads went because sure they bought a certain number of impressions those impressions translated into a certain number of clicks likes and shares uh how far those shares went is really dependent on the followings of the people who 
who shared them. And so that math is math that only Facebook can do at this point. And it's, it's worth noting and mentioning that Facebook has said they're going to be much more transparent with ads. They're going to maintain an archive. Um, and I'm, I think those are good steps. There's just a real question of there's a lot that there's a lot of uh, things that can be hidden or revealed. And if there's one thing Facebook doesn't want to give away, it's how their ad targeting system really works. They're trying to increase market share for themselves. They're trying to um, cut the legs out of their competitors' advertising machines. And that's that's why they're doing all the things they're doing. They're not doing it because they want to undermine democracy. They're not doing it because... Uh, they're by and large relatively liberal people who vote for Democrats. Um, they're not doing it because they want to help Russia. They're doing it because they don't want Snapchat to like take market share from Facebook. Right, but so <laughs> conservative traffic is traffic. Yeah, right. I mean, they, 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 that's what they want. They yeah. want traffic. They want engagement. They want people to spend time on the platform, right? I mean, that, that's, the, that's the goal. The question I have is whether this way that they interpret what social media is, right, driving things to people based on engagement is, in fact, how it's going to work in the long term. Like, I don't expect social media to go away, but one can imagine that when a story gets really hot, they just intentionally slow it down. Um, You can imagine all kinds of different ways that you could configure the machine. Um, And I don't. And I think so far they haven't even tested those things because it's an axiom, you know, that uh, more engagement is better. Uh, and I think one of the key things I've been wanting to encourage there with my writing is, well, maybe that's not true. Well, I mean, what scares me, what I think in the end, I feel like we're all hedging around is like, you know, these platforms have replaced news organizations in essence right they they have much more control over what everyone sees to me i I wrote uh, in 2013 about google fiber project in kansas city and you know it's it was a similar but not nearly as pervasive issue you know like they wanted to build a fiber optic network here but the contract they signed with the city was basically like we get to do whatever we want and 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 you just are glad that we're here you know, there was no control on the city level of where, what neighborhoods they would build in, what, what right. where they would put the Google Fiber stuff. It ended up being very racially divided, the network would have been, if people didn't complain about it, and that was sort of fixed. But I really am frightened when important, what I consider public benefits become privatized. I think it's dangerous. There's no accountability, you know. So how do we deal with the fact that the, basically, the way that everyone consumes news now is a, is through these networks, and there's no real accountability for. I mean, for instance, if Facebook says they're neutral, but look, if somebody started to say that they wanted to regulate Facebook, do you think that their Facebook's going to run that in the news feed and promote, you know, like let that story become a big deal? I don't. Funny thing is, the stories on that have done pretty well. <laughs> okay, well, maybe I'm wrong then. But you know, I, well, but I think it's a it's a it's a it's a good question though because um, the, the question is basically how does Facebook control uh, the newsfeed, and um, you know some of my interlocutors out there in the tech world want to say things like they don't control it. It's not editorial control. It is mechanistic control, uh, which is is slightly different, right? I mean, they they would probably not target a content type in that way, right? Uh, I think the they they would target the the user behavior that could be learned around it if they were going to do anything, which is very different. Um, but I think what's really important to keep in mind is that uh, they control the newsfeed in all these other ways, right? Um, It's not just in the ranking algorithm at the end of the day. It's what they encourage, say like when they made a big push around video, for example. Uh, It's what they encourage um, just like in the, the, the business relationships that they have. Like for example, they've been doing this testing um, in six countries about putting news, like putting news from pages, which is to say all from every organization in a different feed than news feed. Um, that could be a good thing maybe. Um, but they tested in six countries, including Cambodia, which is going through major press repression and they don't have anyone who even works in those countries. 
Hmm. Like, does this work as an information distribution medium? Or is it literally this scale with this set of um, beliefs and mechanisms? Uh, does it just stop working in some really fundamental way, having intentionally and for profit's sake taken over a bunch of things that had previously been, if not public, guild value kind of uh, goods. So like journalism has certain values yeah. uh, that have been embedded and that were developed to solve a lot of these problems. Um, and Facebook repeatedly and over time has said, we're not a media company. We don't want to take this on. We don't want to make these decisions. Well, that's just bullshit to me, basically. I just, I don't buy that. And I don't, I don't disagree. They're already making the decisions. Yeah. Right? yeah. They just haven't taken the responsibility on. And I think the the hard thing is, and the response, you know, because you shadow box enough, you kind of know, you know, what the counterpunches are, is the very thing that you were worrying about. Well, would they let those kinds of stories go? If we do bring more humans into the equation, does it make it more likely that they do exercise editorial control? And if they do exercise editorial control, do they start using it in 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 these other ways. I think of it, I think of it, if you think of it in terms of utilities, right? If somebody screws up the water system or inequitably distributes the water in your town, you can vote them out of office, right? But when it's a private company that's doing it, you can't, we can't have a vote and say, you know, uh, Zuckerberg, we don't like the way you did the, the election. We need somebody else in there. You know, that, that doesn't, there's no accountability. Right. That's my that's my concern. You know, it really stuck with me that uh, Mark Zuckerberg at one point said, um, you know, there was nothing um, there was nothing controversial about connecting more people when he started Facebook, and and I think that that's true. Actually, I think that by and large, people might not have liked the specific ways Facebook did it, but by and large, people thought it was a good thing to have connectivity, and in fact, it was such a good thing that we had to make sure that every single group, poor uh, people of color different countries and everybody would have access to the internet and they'd have access to, uh, you know, to be connected to each other. Um, we saw it as a sort of positive good. Um, and one of the things that I've been thinking about is whether or not that very idea was flawed because I, I think about the last time we kind of connected everybody up on these new networks, it was really around cities. Um, you know, it's, it's people got connected to, uh, each other in these, you know, in biological networks, trading organisms, right? In these sort of labor networks, uh, in different forms of public transportation. And what happened when we did that in the 19th century, when when American cities really form, was it was like the most awful fucking hellish place anyone has ever known. And um, people died. I mean, so many people died. Life expectancy fell in American cities through most of the, the 19th century. Uh, white American men um, shrunk like two inches and didn't recover the same height as the sort of revolutionary forebears until well into the 20th century. Um, these were horrible places. And fire swept through them, disease. Uh, and there's a guy named Richard White who just uh, – he's a historian at Stanford who just wrote a book about this. Um, and he basically says that this got fixed by the progressive movement in, in some ways. And, and Yay, uh, progressivism. Building water systems. Uh, ice was a big factor. Like all of these things. It was a combination of sort of technologies, progressivism, and what he calls the democracy of defecation, which is basically – that if like, you know, people's shit is flowing into the water that you're drinking, no matter where it's coming from, rich or poor, it gives bad. And um, I kind of feel like what we're experiencing right now uh, with this election is a little bit of the democracy of defecation, that people are starting to realize that while you may be able to prune your own social network in such a way that it feels good to you, or you may be able to adjust your usage as an individual that it feels good to you, that it's really this broader entity of the information ecosystem of, uh, you know, the, the ship of information that's sailing along, like it has to sail all together or it's going to sink. And I, I'm, what I am thinking about is that, you know, at that time there was this broad series of reforms, it's water, it's fire. It's like good governance, you know, was a huge thing. Um, it's, uh, building better housing it's zoning, it's planning, public health, trust busting, Right. Yeah. Like what are many of the things that we're dealing with? They're, they're similar. But instead of it being our bodies, it's our brains. It's our oh, bodies. God. 
systems. And there are people working on this, you know. Um, there's a, a group that kind of, depending on who you talk to, was either spun out or bounced out of the New America uh, Foundation. Um, oh, yeah, uh, called- I remember that. I remember this, yeah. Markets people. And they, I mean, they're essentially pushing for, like, that, all that kind of stuff, you know, basically a the an intervention of the scale of the progressive movement, not a, even of like sort of consumer protection in the 60s and 70s. Um, so thinking about all of these things, I was reading this Malcolm Gladwell piece from 2010 called Small Change, which is, you know, sort of about, uh, you know, the revolution will not be tweeted and talking about activism in relation to Facebook and talking about um, specifically social media being built around weak ties and then activism being built around strong ones. I was just thinking about why we were so susceptible to fake news, much of it presumably from sources we didn't know that well. I, for a long time, have written about and been active in Sri Lanka-related issues. And my personal impression um, of working in that area for a while is that I, I often am in conversations or see conversations in which it's impossible to advance discourse because the most basic facts about what happened on the ground are contested. And I wonder, especially, I mean, kind of thinking back, that article by Malcolm Gladwell was from, you know, kind of the era of Arab Spring. And he was looking back and saying that we seem to have forgotten how activism actually takes place. But I I wasn't quite able to, to connect it with our susceptibility to these these fake narratives, the way in which we seem to have become worse readers. Yeah, I mean, if Gladwell's and, right, you know, why did fake news work on us so well during the 2016 election? You know, it's it's funny. At the time Gladwell wrote that, um, I did, I wrote a response. And so I, I just um, pulled it up. And what's funny is um, Zainab, um, who is a sociologist uh, with a difficult to pronounce uh, Turkish last name, um, is, uh, you know, I cited her. And I think one one reason is um, this. I mean, this is a quote from her blog, Technosociology, from back in 2010. And I do think it gets at this. She says, the relationship between weak and strong ties is one of complementarity and support, not one of opposition. And what what I take that to mean is that that if you follow Fox News and you have a strong tie to Fox News um, and they put something out there and um, you're you are, in fact, like kind of likely to believe it and spread it to a bunch of weak ties, some of which are strong ties. And, and those networks are just not simple like that. It's not all weak ties. Mm-hmm. Online. Um, and there are nodes of trust that people develop that can launder um, a lot of nonsense. And I think, unfortunately, for a long time, both the the president as well as his sort of coterie of people have been strong ties that people like feel so um, they they trust them, they believe them. I mean, survey after survey, there's a decent uh, 30% of people who believe Trump beyond all media and all everything else, you know? Yeah, it's not simple, right? As, as usual, right? Here's a story that has, I've in some way broken it down in my brain into strong ties and weak ties, where of course there might, might be all other sorts of nuance in between or ways that those interlock. And yeah, no, that, ex- that explanation is really, and I mean, I, I want to end on one last question to you, um, which is just how do you, I mean, cause you're still on social media, obviously. And you know, I'm wondering how you think about your personal use of it. I mean, I, I guess a couple things uh, before I get into my own, um, you know, kind of shower thoughts about it. I, I would say that I don't, I don't really think a lot of these things are individual problems. Like, I don't think they can be solved that way. I think they, you know, kind of like in a in a climate change sense, these are like collective action problems, and they're going to like require. Uh, you know, these, these broader responses by government and, and, you know, some company self-regulation for some of the things and, you know, just kind of like cultural change and all these, like, I just, I think there's only so much an individual can do to sort of change these things. Um, The problem is that, that the, the, the one party in our, in our current two party system, the Republicans have used these networks also to spread the message that government can't do those things and is incompetent and should be smaller and shouldn't regulate things. 
That's Although that predated, I mean, that's yeah, true. I've been reading stuff about battles in the 1920s and 30s about public housing, and like people have been saying that shit forever, right? <laughs> it's like, I think it's it's. I think what's interesting though is that it is incredibly uh, effective and inexpensive to spread those things now, um, and and I don't mean to say it's exactly the same. Like I don't I don't think that it is, um, and in, in part that's because the the these. A particular wing of the Republicans, with the aiding and abetting of the the rest of them, um, have just completely detached from um, the reality that most people see. And I think, like, that's the that is I don't know how to deal with that. And I think if you look at the rise of of Breitbart and what happened there, I mean, this was a uh, particularly on Facebook. We've like run the numbers, uh, gone back through time. Going into 2015, they had nothing on Facebook. Basically, I mean, they were they were not a big deal, and they became the central node, sucking in from even further right and spreading it slightly further left. Um, all of this, all of these things, you know, from Pizzagate and Milo and <laughs> everything, you know, and I think. I think if you think about that asymmetrical um, loss of touch with sort of the the reality uh, that underpins like the world, I think that's really I don't know how to deal with that. And I also do think that Facebook played a role in that radicalization. No, uh, we talked about this, that you're going to write a book about this. Um, what can people do? In a practical sense, you know, can we, maybe we should just go have a big march on Facebook, wherever their offices are. I don't know. You know what I mean? But what, what, what can people do in a practical way? I want at a, at a systemic level there to be more dampers built in to the way these networks work so that it, things get slowed down rather than sped up. Um, but there are things that you can do just in your own social media to try uh, and, and do that. My, my good buddy and lab mate, uh, Robin Sloan, wrote a script that lets you turn off all retweets for everybody. Um, so I, we both have it. We both completely turned off all retweets. We don't see any retweets. Like I would rather see things I completely disagree with rather than something that's just like perfectly annoying because it's sort of right, but mostly wrong. And, you know, just there's this perfection of annoyance that you can reach on social media and and turning off retweets, um, works so well. I feel like Twitter is a much better experience for me with just that one damper in place. So how do we get the script? So no retweets, except for ones that involve this show. That would be my one thing that I'd want added to the script. I'm going to see if I can I'm going to see if I can change my change the change my media landscape in this particular way. Um, Alexis, thank you so much. This has been really interesting. And I'm going to go and alter how my brain works in this particular way. (laughs) Yeah, Alexis, thanks for being with us. Uh, I really enjoyed the piece and enjoyed talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you both. This is uh, it's been delightful. Okay, our next guest is Alexander Chi, an associate professor of English at Dartmouth and the author of the 2016 novel The Queen of the Night and the forthcoming essay collection How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. Alexander, welcome to the show. Thank you. Alexander, it's so great to have you here on the show. Uh, One of the reasons we wanted to get your input on the developing revelations about Facebook and other social media sites is that you're thought of as a writer who is, for lack of a better phrase, good at social media. And I know that last summer LitHub ran an interview about the way writers use social media and you and Roxanne Gay and Celeste Ng and Adam Grant were on it. And they called the four of you authors whose social media prowess we admire. But I guess I wondered how you think about that characterization. Uh. Well, first of all, thank you. I appreciate all that. It, I mean, I was, how do I feel about it? I, I feel ambivalent about it, I suppose. I always feel ambivalent about it. I've, I've been blogging since 2004. And when I first started, people were, literary people were shady about it. Uh, and I think there's still a kind of, Back, like it's still a backhanded compliment, I think, to say that someone is good at social media from certain corners, you know. Um, and it, there's a, a way in which I I do think about that and or and or worry about it. But you know, for writers like myself who are writers of color or or queer or both, uh, that that social media has has meant. Uh, enormous things for our visibility and for 
for our our current careers. So I, you know, I've chosen it in a way that I that I understand is strategic. I mean, it's certainly not for me. It's definitely not a backhanded compliment. In fact, I was looking at that at that interview and a couple of things you suggest, like don't just be a billboard. I was like, oh. Okay, that's me. I do that. You know, there were a lot of things that I'm like, oh, I could do better. I need to pay more attention to Alex's Alexander's advice. Uh, but so at one point they did ask you in that interview, you know, whether or not uh, social media is a force for good or not good, as they phrased it, you know. And I've always sort of thought arguments against the psychological effects of social media it were s- somewhat silly. And I've really agreed with most of the stuff that you've had to say about it, including you said in the interview, you know, whatever you think it is, it becomes, you know. But recently, the stuff that we're talking about today, the interviews about the, the revelations about Facebook being sort of co-opted by shadow accounts and used to sow discord in the American electorate, that's really changed the way that I've started to think about it, you know, and my use of it. And I wondered if it's changed the, the way you've thought about it, too. It has in some ways. And yet, I also remember from the very beginning when I first heard about Facebook in 2008, I heard about it in relationship to Palantir, and I heard that it was a part of a conservative political scheme to uh, to control the American public. And so, so in some ways, I guess you could say Facebook has turned out to become exactly what I always thought it would become. Like, you know, the people attempting to sow discord uh, on Facebook, it should be pointed out, are not liberals seeming to do this. It's very much, it's very much coming from conservatives who have an angle and a and an agenda that they're pursuing actively, and it's all funded by by you know these billionaires, these billionaire donors who uh, who are pursuing their their tax cuts at an astonishing price. So how do you think then about, I mean, of course, and I, I think I'm generalizing here pretty reasonably, most literary writers or a lot of literary writers are interested in progressive politics, are interested in being critical um, of exactly those types of actors. And yet at the same time on our social media, you know, you can feel like a drop in a bucket. And how do you, and, and you, you've posted a lot about politics. Have you done that with any sort of overarching strategy in mind? strategy when I post about politics? Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I treat Facebook a lot like a, a phone tree from the old days of being an activist where you call a friend and they call a friend and, you know, and everybody gets called eventually. Um, and it's, uh, that's how I, that's how I use it politically. I, I think there's no, there's no other strategy for me than that. You know, it's, I think I will say in this in this age that in some ways just saying the truth or typing it into uh, into an update bar feels like a strategy for staying sane, which is a very different kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's a different different and very important purpose. Yeah, and, and when other people when other people do it, I, I feel the same, and I think that's that's not nothing. I mean, for me, you know, that's exactly it. You know, I've learned a lot politically just by being on social media. Uh, for me, I mean, being in Kansas City, you know, you're pretty. You're, you can be. My previous life in Kansas City was felt a lot more isolated than it did before. I had contacts with writers on Twitter or on Facebook. You know, the problem being that you know, and so I've invested in this platform. You know, and yet it's turned out that, that I don't trust the people who run the platform. You know. Right after the election, when I saw how Cambridge Analytica had used our data against us, I thought, "Wow, this is really untenable." You know, but at the same time, yes, it's it's true that like community of writers that I'm in touch with on social media, and that's really an important part of it for writers is that you know, communities for writers are intensely important parts of our lives and our careers. We don't we're not as as much a bunch of loners as we as we might. Think we 
Well, I mean, social media is like crack for a writer. It's right there. You're, you're, it's, it's a thing for a person who's going to be inside all day, but then can still talk to people. You know, I mean, I, I almost never leave my house on a normal working day, and yet I can be in touch with people. You know, when I'm not writing. You know. Yeah, I think for me, it's a lot like those bars that I used to go to in Brooklyn uh, or, or cafes where I, I knew that I would know someone if I dropped in and if I was working a lot and I didn't have, I didn't have to make plans, I could just go out and see people. That was sort of the best thing for my headspace. I didn't want, you know, what a, a friend of mine calls a shadow on the day. You know, where you like you make an appointment at like five o'clock and then the part of you that writes is like, I'm sorry, but I can't say anything because you've made this appointment at five o'clock. Yeah, <laughs> that's totally true. If I have a lunch date, I'll think two hours before I think, well, it's not really worth doing this writing now since this lunch date's going to be in the way. Yeah, it's funny how strategically you have to think about your social interactions in in both spaces. And I don't know, I I kind of can't wait to talk about the Borges. So I'm going to I'm going to bring it up now um, because I feel like it connects so much to what you're both saying about, I don't know, the question of whether things are infinite or not and how you think about your space, which was so much of what I was thinking about in in reading this story, which which Wit suggested when we were thinking about this episode, the Library of Babel. And I went to it and looked at it and I thought, oh, my gosh, it's perfect. The metaphor is just so strong. The size and implications of the Facebook database um, the size of the, the, I remember going on the internet for the first time and thinking how limitless it was and how answers to everything must be in there. And then there's these moments where, where you realize that your odds of finding exactly the thing you want are also, might also be correspondingly small. Yeah. Uh, not only you, that, but the, but the story was published in 1941 Right. You know, so this idea of this uh, of, of this limitless environment of, uh, of data, you know, so precedes its sort of execution in the world. You know, Alex, when did you first read it? I mean, I actually I uh, this is one of those stories that I had always known about, but never read, to be honest, um, uh, until uh, until you guys proposed. Yay, uh, we brought you to the story. Uh, uh, it, and it's true that just about uh, you know every paragraph has at least one thing that you can use as a way to think about how social media operates. I think there is there's an illusion that the web is a limitless supply of information. It's actually a kind of decrepit shanty town of information. <laughs> That's great. That's fantastic. Wait, so I'm gonna I'm gonna quote a couple lines from the story before we go a little further, just to give our listeners who maybe also haven't read the story um, a sense of where we're coming from. The story starts with the line: "The universe, which others call the library, is composed of an indefinite and perhaps infinite number of hexagonal galleries, with vast air shafts between, surrounded by very low railings." And then then the narrator goes on to say, the library is a sphere whose exact center is any one of its hexagons and whose circumference is inaccessible. Um, So in in many ways, I feel like the story is it's almost it's also like a like a floor plan. Yeah, and it's very specific also. I mean, Borges says, like, all the books in the library are 410 pages. Each page has 40 lines, and it's supposed to contain, the library's supposed to contain every possible permutation of the 25 natural symbols, which is letters, spaces, and commas, you know. So any book, and and some of them are nonsensical books, you know. Like, there's one book he talks about that is like the letters MCV repeated from the beginning to the end of the book. Um, But it, it does feel to me, like, in scope and size, like... And the, you know what? There's also, Alec, Alexander, a, a shantytown aspect to the library. I mean, a lot of people don't understand what's going on there. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a very bizarre place. Well, I think that, you know, the, the parts that stri- strike me as relevant to what we're talking about are like uh, the thousands and thousands of false catalogs, the demonstration of the fallacy of those catalogs, demonstration of the fallacy of the true catalog, you know, like the, <laughs> The, the moments, it's not an exact mirror for what we're talking about. It's, it's a, a kind of uh, imperfect mirror that, um, that you know, where the, the connections peak out in moments. You know, a blasphemous sex suggested that the searches should cease and that all men should juggle letters and symbols until they're constructed by an improbable gift of chance. These canonical books uh, made me think of, like, 
you know, people trying to do what I call, you know, refing the internet. <laughs> where, <laughs> you know, where someone is posting like, but nobody's paying attention to this and everybody's paying attention to this. And, you know, like I, something, something about the story reminds me of, I guess, that phenomenon that I, I noticed and a lot of people noticed about how with online life came just like a shocking number of exclamation points in <laughs> when people write. <laughs> you know, the how it was just like the absolute opposite of the kind of training that we had as writers, you know, where we were taught, uh, you know, use maybe like five exclamation points in your whole career. Um, the or the or the way in which people will post things and will say, "I'm crying, I can't stop crying, I'm dying," you know, like and and none of that is true. They're not dead. They're alive. They're not. They weren't crying when they wrote it. Uh, can they? You know, when they when people post like, "I can't stop watching this," like they've already stopped watching it. Like <laughs> it's this kind of illusion, illusory excitement that is constantly being uh pushed at us even in even in non-political posts you know that um that comes back to us eventually in these political posts that's interesting the way that it's giving us this facade of things being really grounded and in fact it's often an illusion i was just thinking this morning of how many articles journalistic articles i've read probably in the past couple of years where there will be some sort of reference to uh, some social media observers say there has been some pushback on social media and then they'll just start posting tweets. And, uh, you know, sometimes those will be we'll have a sense of who the, the people saying the things are. Um, sometimes we won't. But before you probably wouldn't have quoted someone in a journalistic article without having talked to them on the phone, at least maybe exchanged an email sent to an address with their name and you knew it was them. Um, you would have some sense of who you had spoken to. The other thing that I picked up on was that the because the library is infinite, nobody really knows what's in it, right? So everyone has different, and, and there are these sects, you know, that, that uh, Alexander was talking about who have different opinions about it. And let, they look like there was this one description of a traveler, these guys who are inquisitors who'd like come really tired to visit this guy's library and look up a couple books and not be able to prove what they were trying to prove. But all these sects are similar. You know, in Facebook, one of the things is these dark ads that – uh, Alexis Madrigal talks about that that only go to certain targeted people who see them right and nobody else can know that they're that they're happening you know and that, that has to do with this idea Madrigal also quotes this guy Max Reed in New York magazine who says Facebook is like a four-dimensional object and we catch slices of it when it passes through the three-dimensional world we recognize and that's the thing like I think we perceive a certain kind of aspect of Facebook but it's so much larger right that that it's in that uh, that's where the the story and its incoherence in the end of of the data set as a whole is what's interesting to me yeah i mean that like how how do you reach a collective uh, consensus decision when uh someone has seen things that you'll never see yeah and is responding to things that you can't uh verify or argue against exactly you know? And that's the part where it becomes, uh, you know, everybody talking and nobody listening, and the and the languages uh, start to to move apart from each other, and that's that's where the babble part definitely. Oh yeah, yes. I mean that's that's why. I mean you know, I mean Borges is saying something with that title, you know. It's funny that part actually always makes me think of um, the part that the Max Reed quote. Uh, like a four-dimensional object, we catch slices of it. It made me think of A Wrinkle in Time because it's just oh, right. Yeah. The fourth, the fourth dimension is the tesseract. You know, we don't even go from one point to the other. We're simply there. We've simply arrived at a place where Paul Manafort has been in, been indicted. We've, you know, we've simply arrived at a place where our understanding of reading and writing has changed. And just as Alexis wrote, it doesn't seem like we have. You know, he said that the first draft of history on this topic is essentially blank because of our failure to understand how we've changed. Yeah, I think there's something else, though, that I think is more, I think, relevant to it, which is this thing I've noticed about the way that uh, there's, a, there's a political commitment to the permanent argument that, uh, that I think is at the bottom of what is called both sides, uh, both sidesism. Yeah. Right. 
And of course, what that really is about is promoting a kind of cynicism that feels like it's a rebellion, but is actually a way to support the status quo. Yes. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, you know, one of the things that I also noticed about the story is there's he's he the the writer, the narrator talks is writing this note to us and he says, uh, you know, these it is enough to compare these crude wavering symbols with my fallible uh, which my fallible hand scrawls on the cover of a book with the organic letters inside. And I it's, you know, it's so odd. It, there's a choice using that word organic. You would think that the handwriting would be organic, you know. And so to me, there's some similarity of this idea of like what is and is not organic about us, you know, to this idea of 2.0 people and 1.0 people, which Zadie Smith uses in her 2010 review of the Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, bio, Mark Buckerberg, the Mark Zuckerberg biopic, uh, The Social Network. I mean, the narrator of the Library of Babel lives in the library. There's no existence outside of the library. For him, the library itself has become organic. And Smith writes, perhaps Generation Facebook have built their virtual mansions in good faith in order to house the people 2.0 they genuinely are. And if I feel uncomfortable with them, is it because I'm stuck as at person 1.0? I mean, do you buy that kind of distinction, Alexander, as a 1.0 person? Or, or even are you a 1.0 person? I don't know. I mean... I, it's funny, I taught this uh, piece by Zadie last year to my uh, to my writing five students at Dartmouth, and they really could not relate. They don't really use Facebook that much. Huh. Um, many of them are not on it. They basically think of it as a place their parents go to fight about politics. <laughs> um, or as a place to like get busted... Uh, for doing something that they don't want anyone to know about. They essentially are trying to, you know, as much as the, it's claimed that they don't have, that they don't understand privacy or they don't know about it, they are in fact, you know, creating their own sort of warrens of, uh, of privacy inside of all of these social networks. Um, this piece is, I think, a really smart way to think about Zuckerberg for sure. I think the the 2.0 the 2.0 folks that she was imagining have made very different choices than what she imagined they would. Yeah, you know, they have they haven't all filed neatly into the Facebook house, and in fact, uh, they they are repelled by it. But I think the you know it, it, I mean yes, it's still true that Facebook is also growing immensely. It's also true that Facebook regularly lies about. Um, about its growth and about its numbers, uh, as we saw as a part of this um, uh, data scandal. In the Borges story, nobody knows who created the library, and the narrator posits, posits a, quote, man of the book who has read the one good book that explains the library and says that that person would be analogous to a god. And the, if the god of Facebook is Mark Zuckerberg, he's a pretty fallible god, right? Because he didn't understand how his own network was operating during the election. Doesn't People seem to be surprised, including Facebook, about how young people are moving away from Facebook in some ways now. And I think that... But I mean, he started a, the whole network. This whole network that is controlling all this stuff was started by a guy who wanted to rape girls. You know, at, at at Harvard in a kind of mean way. You know, doesn't seem like a good origin. That is understated. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think you know, you know, I have I've had several friends who've worked at Facebook, um, and I think you know, I know, I think oh, I'm well, fortunate. Aren't you, you know, special. I don't have any well, friends who work at Facebook. <laughs> I, think, I think I've known a lot of people who've worked at Facebook for reasons. I mean, just I I went to school with a lot of people who love technology. Facebook. Right. And, and, and Alexis writes about this, you know, that it po- posited itself as a neutral company. And um, just because you mean to be neutral doesn't mean that you end up being neutral. So, I mean, who is I think that Mark Zuckerberg, um, I mean, you're right. He started it. To, he started it to rate started to rate faces. And um, but I do on some level, even though it's wildly untidy and who knows what's going to happen. I like the idea of all of these younger users running inventing their own autonomous spaces and, and creating new things out of it. I, I mean, one of the things that we're not talking about in this conversation also, and the way it relates to writers and social media is the, the ways in which, uh, you know, uh, the economy as it operates requires us to promote ourselves. Yes. 
the internet has, you know, really destroyed uh, the 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 uh, amount of money that writers make, the amount of money that publishers make, the amount of money that uh, publishers are able to invest in a writer, you know, uh, and so we're using these networks instead uh, right. as a as a way to make up for that, even as um, even as whatever the destruction is continues to. Yes. Occur. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the first thing to go at every paper is the book review section for crying out loud. You know, um, I, I mean, I have students. We've had a long standing internship program at the Kansas City Star with my, my MFA students go and write book reviews for them. And then this fall, finally, you know, the, the wonderful woman who runs the section was like, look, I just can't. I, I have so many other responsibilities. I can't also do this anymore. You know, and it's just, and that is a Facebook thing. They've caused that reviews to go down, and so therefore we have to use this system. And that's like what you know Madrigal keeps saying in his in his essay. You know, damn, Facebook owns us. You know, or so are we going to all just die in the library like Borges at narrator? Or you know, what what can be changed about this? What do you guys think? It's not just Facebook, though, right? I mean. It's every it's uh, it's Facebook, it's Goodreads, it's Amazon, it's yes, uh, all of these things. Like uh, it, it, it's a kind of uh, it, it's bigger than Facebook. So yes. I, I know that you seem really mad at Facebook today. By the way, <laughs> but I, but I that, like, I'm mad at all of them. I, I mean, I've written about Google. I think Google is a really dangerous company. I think these companies people have imagined them for a long time to be generally progressive, and I see that a show up in these stories, but they are not. They are libertarian. When you write about them and they get mad at you, they send their flax after you who all have worked at like the Wall Street Journal and then been co-opted. And they'll, you know, call up radio stations before you. This is all stuff that happened to me. Call up a radio station. This guy's a novelist. He doesn't know anything. You're going to be embarrassing yourself if you put him on the air, you know. I mean, they're tough. They they fight. I definitely agree with that. I mean, I'm thinking about if this Borges story were if it were about the Internet and Amazon, it would be like someone came into Borges library and checked out a book and took it to some other infinite building and put it there for some indefinite period of time and then went back to Borges Library and took another book and went back to Borges Library and took another book and moved the entire building over um, <laughs> and then declared it Amazon. I mean, it's just, I, and like the whole thing is still there, right? It's right, like Alex is right that I think lots of inequalities, people who have were sometimes pushed to the margins on social media have often boosted voices. It's also still true that, um, right, Men are less likely to follow women on Twitter. Um, there's a whole host of statistics like this. Um, I'm on Twitter because I like being on Twitter. And if I didn't like being on Twitter, I wouldn't do it because I don't know that I have a lot of evidence that um, I don't I don't like the idea of it being a sales tactic. It's I think it's mostly useful to me also because it's it's a space that feels between public and private. It's almost like I'm talking to myself in an acceptable way in public. <laughs> and yeah, so I mean, I think that's why that's why I like it. But I do think that there are a lot of people who think that it's like it's moving books off the shelves. But it, maybe it's just moving. Maybe it's moving books from one shelf to the other. You know, and as I said in that LitHub article, like social media for writers is about being a is about creating a space where a reader's momentary interest in you turns into a relationship, and then what you and the reader do with that relationship is between the two of you, and you may much in the same way that you don't know what happens in the world uh, with your books, uh, you know, what, how they affect people. You also don't know, <coughs> excuse me, how, how your social media presence affects people. We have to be, be watchful for when that, you know, mix of good and bad turns to mostly bad. We have to be aware of how, uh, of how that's, Going down, it's just it's just very hard to know. Yeah, I wouldn't um, want to give up uh, reading. I mean, interacting with both of you, you know, uh, for me. So, I mean, despite all my you know ranting about th these companies themselves, <laughs> you know, if, to me, it's a really important resource. That that's why I just think, and this will never happen because neoliberalism and because you know libertarianism, but not to mention the Republican Party, but. I think they should be nationalized. I think that these forms of discourse are like the water department or, you know, uh, 
electricity. That's just what I think. And I, you know, I think that they should be treated like utilities, these, these information platforms. <laughs> Which will never happen. I know. I know it will never happen. Well, it's, it's, there is something that has to be done. And I guess the question is, like, will they, will they do it or, or how is it going to be done? I think part of the problem that, that we all have at this point is that both Twitter and Facebook are, are really difficult to uh, they just won't give users the kind of transparency that they need to uh, to to feel like they are operating safely. I'm just going to say this because I think we should say, given what we've been talking about, is that executives from Facebook, Google, and Twitter will be testifying at congressional hearings on Tuesday and Wednesday this week. So if you want to have a voice in uh, how the government talks to these companies, contact your congressional representative. Um, Alexander, thanks so much for being on with us. It's great to talk to you. Alex, thanks. Alexander, thanks so much. And also congratulations. I want to make sure to say congratulations on the new book and, and ask you when it's coming out. Uh, it, it, uh, it comes out April uh, of 2018, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, which is not a how-to book. <laughs> Well, well I am so looking forward to reading it. Me too. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, it's been great to be here. And so uh, for our In the Stack section, we have uh, Sarah Bagby, who's the owner of Watermark Books in Wichita, one of the great Midwestern bookstores. Uh, Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. We're going to have you uh, give us a few recommendations that relate to our uh, – subject today. What do you got? Well, okay. The first one I want to talk about is a novel that came out in 1991 by Don DeLillo. It's called Libra. And it was public. It is about Lee Harvey Oswald. And it may not sound like it's related, but the reason it's related, one reason is because it's about secrets. It's about uh, calculation, calculating politics, the same kind of situation that you find when people just Put, put use new technologies or new secrets together to, you know, put out a message that some of us aren't aware of. The next one I want to talk about is came out in, it, it came out this spring in paperback. It's called uh, Listen Liberal, and it's by Thomas Frank, who wrote What's the Matter with Kansas? And it, this relates to how the media got it wrong in a way. And I realize the article is more about um, how we can't control information in communities. However, this talks about how the media missed it and what happened to the Democratic Party and how um, they cannot hear a lot of what maybe they need to hear. Well, find- Tom's a very good friend and a great Kansas City writer, so I'm happy to hear you recommend his book. Okay, and and that one is particularly good. I mean, I read it before the election, and I just thought, this is not good. This is not going well. Anyway, the third one I want to talk about comes out November 14th. It's by another Kansas or poet, actually, with Kansas roots, and it's called Bunk. The rise of hoaxes, humbug, plagiarists, phonies, post-facts, and fake news. And this is a history of lies and fabrications and shows that we are um, experiencing really nothing new right now, but how people get away with these fabrications and how they take hold um, in, in masses. I'm, I'm happy you're keeping it, uh, keeping it here in the Midwestern family. Tried and Bunk was long listed for the National Book Award, so um, it's been it's been uh, past muster through so many people. So listen, Sarah, thank you so much for being on the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Thank you for having me. I look forward to seeing you at the store. Okay, thanks. Bye bye. And that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Sugi and I will be back with a new episode in two weeks. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us in iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, through Audio Boom, or at the Literary Hub website. And yes, after spending an hour railing against Facebook and large media corpor- and large social media corporations, I'm going to encourage you to like our Facebook page at FNF Pod and leave us a review on iTunes so other lit- listeners can find us. That's called negative capability. 
and it was invented by a writer named John Keats, so I'm allowed. Happy reading! <laughs>